I look up and there is a briefcase sized stone spinning in space. And I yell, rock. I tighten my body and try to get my shoulders underneath my little plastic helmet. And the place just erupts. You hear the gear crashing and rock ball, and then I get pulled up. It's this kinetic violence. And then it's quiet. I look up and I can see Jack hanging upside down, blood dripping out of his helmet and down his face and down his arm. He is out cold. They say the most important thing in climbing is picking the right partner. You want to be certain you can trust that person with your life. For years, experienced alpinists Charlie Cicera and Jack Tackle were the best of friends. But it wasn't until 2002, 23 years after they first met, that they finally had a chance to scale a mountain together. And it wouldn't just be any old climb either, but a first ascent. A climb that no one had ever completed before. Mount Augusta is a 14,500-foot peak in the St. Elias Mountains. It straddles the border between Alaska and the United States and the Yukon in Canada. And its north face had never been conquered. Charlie and Jack traveled there in June 2002, ready to start their climb. It looked a little trickier up close than it did in the photographs, but neither man was afraid. They had this. And more importantly, they had each other should anything go wrong. But it's one thing to have that level of trust. It's quite another to be tested on it. I'm Donnie Dust, United States Marine Corps veteran and world-renowned survival expert. This is Rescue. Today's episode, To Be a Rock. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. My name is Charlie Cicera. I'm uh, just uh, basically a local kid from Alaska. Back in 2002, Charlie was a veteran of the climbing world with over 25 years of experience. He credits his grandmother for instilling him with a sense of adventure. She would have this big map of the world and she would throw a dart against the, the map. Wherever it would land, she would tell a story about what was going on here in the Himalaya or Fiji or wherever it was. So that's, that's where it began. Growing up in Alaska, there's no better place for aspiring climbers than the Ruth Gorge. It's a stunning glacial playground that lies under the shadow of Mount Denali, North America's tallest mountain. 
It was there during a climbing trip with friends in 1979 that Charlie met Jack for the very first time. This guy skis up to us and you know, he's bearded and really haggard. And he goes, do you have a radio or a sat phone? We go, no, why? It was Jack Tackle and he had just skied from Denali Jack was something of a local hero, a much-revered young upstart of the Alaskan climbing community. That day, he and his climbing partner at the time, Ken Kearns, were attempting a first ascent on the ISIS face, a southeastern section of Mount Denali that had never been climbed before. About 2,000 feet up, Kearns fell 250 feet, suffering serious head injuries and a broken femur. Jack was forced to climb down on his own to get help. Startled by Jack's sudden appearance, Charlie felt very out of his depth. The children that we were, were trying to figure out how we were gonna support them and get our gear together, but we were irrelevant. So that was the first time I met him. Three years later, Jack returned to Denali and successfully completed the climb, this time with his friend Dave Stutzman the two of them becoming the first people ever to scale the ISIS face. Soon after that first awkward meeting, Charlie and Jack were eventually drawn together through mutual friends. For Charlie, it was easy to see why Jack was so well-loved. He's sarcastic, great humor, and he's a smart, smart character. You know, he's handsome and the girls love him, and he's just one of those people that you want to be around. The kind of routes he had done, he was, you know, proven that he was tough. And we loved to tease him because he's so cool. He's Jack Tackle, you know. It sounds like a, like a movie script or something. Having become such firm friends, it seemed only a matter of time before they'd attempt something serious together. But the right moment never really came about. Then, in 2002, Jack got struck down with Guillain-Barre. The life-threatening autoimmune disorder left Jack temporarily paralyzed. The first thing Charlie did was send him a barrel cactus as a good luck token. It's a family tradition for whenever someone fell ill. The second was to let him in on a plan he was concocting. To become the first person to climb Mount Augusta's North Face. And our sport, we were always greedy about first ascents and we wanted them desperately and we wouldn't share them other than with the person that you intended to go with. And so you have that bond and you have secrecy about what you're going to go do. And so he got to have that as a goal of getting healthy. For the next few months as Jack recovered, Charlie worked on figuring out the best route for them to take. Ultimately, the pair would be heading up into completely unknown territory, but Charlie had no reservations. I wasn't really concerned that this was something that was over our heads in terms of difficulty, because we were both very, very competent and were mature climbers, not young and inexperienced. When June 2002 finally rolled around, both Jack and Charlie were ready. When I got to Augusta, I was about as strong as I was ever as a climber. I mean, I was, I was really fucking strong. There's really no hesitation. 
With Mount Augusta being in such a remote location, the pair have to first drive up to Kalani National Park in the Yukon, then take a small plane deep into the mountains where they will land just a few miles from Mount Augusta's north face. And it's there that they set up their base camp. Charlie and Jack spend the first day checking and double-checking everything, making sure that they are fully prepared. There's not a lot of talking, um, other than, you know, last-minute questions about, you know, how much food or how much extra nylon you might bring for repels, or really, you just go do the work. But it's a very risky sport. And it's deadly. It is around this time, somewhere in the region of Kalani National Forest, about 100 miles northeast of their camp, that a forest fire breaks out. Already that year, 4,300 acres of forest have been destroyed by wildfires. As this fire rages, heat and ash drift into the air and head in the direction of Mount Augusta. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The morning of the climb, we woke up probably three or four o'clock in the morning and the sky is pink and it's cool. It's about 15 degrees Fahrenheit. We put our packs on and began to ski up towards the mountain, which was about three miles away. There was no wind, hardly any cloud cover, and the snow was hard, just perfect conditions. After two hours of skiing, the pair find themselves staring up at the majestic north face of Mount Augusta, a never-before-navigated, 65-degree slope of ice and rock that towers 7,000 feet above them. This is when the real climbing begins. The first third of it is pretty steep, and the first pitch is dead vertical. You can't see all of the route once you're up, up, up underneath it. You can only see maybe two or 300 feet in front of you. Jack says, you know, um, I've been sick. I want to take the first lead. So I went, all right, go for it, man. Taking the lead means simply being the climber that goes first. The whole time, the climbers are connected by a rope. The term belaying is something you'll hear a lot in the world of climbing. It's one of those key reasons why people climb in pairs. It's sort of how the sport is designed with a rope and the two ends of the rope. 
you can have multiple people on that rope, but the most natural way is in pairs. As one climbs, the other stays in place, feeding the rope through a belaying device, which acts as a kind of breaker, enabling the one who is holding it to catch the other climber if they fall. The rope is a bond between the climbers. It's their lifeline. When it's your turn to climb, you are literally putting your life in your partner's hands. As Charlie carefully feeds the rope out between them, he's a little apprehensive as Jack takes the lead. For me, the big thing was I didn't really know how Jack was going to do after the girl on Bray. And then within a pitch, I realized he's just fine. Jack moves from strength to strength. Eight hours of climbing later, the pair are 2,000 feet up the face. That's just under a half a mile. Here, they decide to take a break and get some shut-eye. To do this, first they need to find a spot with enough ice and snow to carve out a secure ledge, wide enough for them to pitch a tent. It's called cliff camping, and it's not for the faint-hearted, but there is nowhere nearby to safely anchor their tent. Jack says, yeah, I'll just go up and look around, see what we can find. And there's another spot, looks like about 50, 60 feet up, that looks like it might have a place we can chop a ledge. So Jack sets off to investigate as Charlie waits on the narrow ledge of ice they just made. And I'm belaying him, and, and that's when I noticed the temperature. And the temperature had come up, and it was really warm. I could smell burning timber, and I could hear the beginnings of rockfall. All through that morning, as they were climbing, completely unknown to Charlie and Jack, the heat and hot ash from that distant forest fire has been steadily making its way towards them, gradually turning the temperature up from 15 degrees Fahrenheit to 40. And now the ice is beginning to melt. Charlie and Jack are 2,000 feet up a mountain face, with nowhere to hide as huge chunks of rock and stone previously kept in place by the ice and snow are starting to come loose above them. After he got up, the rockfall intensified and I look up and there is a briefcase sized stone spinning in space and I yell rock. I tighten my body and try to get my shoulders underneath my little plastic helmet, and the place just erupts. You hear the gear crashing and rock fall, and then I get pulled up, and it's this kinetic violence. And then it's quiet. I look up, and I can see Jack hanging upside down, blood dripping out of his helmet and down his face and down his arm. He is out cold. Jack falls 50 feet before Charlie catches him, snagging the rope tight inside of his belaying device. In those first few seconds, as Jack dangles above him on the end of a rope, 2,000 feet above the ground, Charlie has no idea if his friend is dead or alive. As carefully as he can, Charlie lowers Jack down onto the ledge. Then he notices the rack that Jack is carrying, with all of the equipment needed to get back down, is slipping off of Jack's shoulders. 
and it's sliding down his torso and down to his head. So I belay him down to me. And just as he reaches me, I, I grab the rack off of his shoulder so it doesn't slide off of him and down the mountain. I'm so pumped with adrenaline. I grab with one hand by the chest and turn him over and set him upright. And a few minutes later, he starts to regain consciousness. He's not really coherent, but he's not dead. He's paralyzed. One arm, he can't use one arm. He had broken out a bunch of his teeth and he was bleeding. And he slumped over like a big 180 pound ball of goo. And a few minutes later, He's like, ugh, what happened? He got fucking clocked. It's a great relief to see that Jack is still alive, but with a pair of them close to a half a mile from the ground, completely alone, and a good plane ride from the nearest town, Charlie knows instantly that he is Jack's only hope. What I first did was to make Jack secure against the wall. Then what I do is I untie him from the rope and pull the remaining rope that's up through the protection that he had put in when he was leading above me. So I had to retrieve that 50 or 60 feet of rope back down to me. Having single-handedly recovered the excess rope and secured Jack to the ledge, Charlie's plan is to try and lower Jack back down to the ground. Then he tries to move him again, and that's when he knows things are really serious. When I tried to move Jack, he was in this excruciating pain. What I thought is maybe his back was broken, but I was pretty sure that he had internal bleeding because he just got throttled so bad. He asked me, what are you doing? I said, I'm figuring out how to lower you. And he goes, you can't. I can't do it. It's too painful. It's clear that there's no chance of Charlie getting him off the mountain alone. There's only one option. Charlie will have to leave Jack and go get help. The men had a satellite phone, but had left it back at their base camp because where they were climbing, it wouldn't have received a signal. Base camp was an eight hour trek away. Charlie would first have to climb back down then successfully negotiated dangerous cross field all on his own. But before that, Charlie first has to find the strength to leave Jack. It's only when Jack insists that he go, Charlie finally accepts the responsibility. Our commitment to each other was so intense that I was willing to take the risk of lowering him off the mountain, which would have higher chances of us getting both killed. Jack's choice that he couldn't be lowered gave me the opportunity to live. But the leaving Jack, I felt guilty. With the decision made, 
Charlie has to make sure he gives Jack the best chance of surviving on that mountain alone. He opens up their tent and gently eases Jack into it, anchoring it and Jack to the cliff. Then he transfers over all of their resources, leaving Jack with the stove to melt snow and enough food to last days if need be. I would just work, 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 and then I would stop. And I go, I can't think of anything more. And then it, and all of a sudden something would come up like, okay, put this lighter in the, his left pocket because his left arm is paralyzed and he can't move to the right. And when it was finally done and I couldn't think of anything more that I could do, there was nothing left undone to help Jack survive on that ledge. Then we had the conversation about leaving He tells me about Pat, who was his girlfriend at the time, and how much he loved her, and how much, you know, like how much he loved me, and vice versa, and how much, you know, that he trusted me. And, you know, it was very, very intimate. And some of the details, you know, are lost in time, but the sense was that you'd take in all you can at this moment and savor it. Because this is all you get, right here. And then it was time to leave. Charlie knows all too well, even if he makes it to the phone, there's every chance that he might not see his friend alive again. How did it feel to leave Jack? It was brutal. It's so hard to let go of that person. I wanted to give him the speech from Caesar where they're going into battle. And he says, if we meet at the end of the battle, we'll celebrate the day. And if not, it is a parting well spent. I didn't have the courage to say it. As I get ready to leave Jack, he says, travel safe. And I said, I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get help. So I make the first rappel and people that climb will understand this. I set up the next rappel and you're pulling the rope and near the end of it, you can feel it get light. This is just gonna go through the anchor where Jack is and he goes, and you're separated. The connection is permanently broken at that moment. It is not going back. At just after midnight, with the connection between the men now severed, Charlie begins to make his way back down, leaving Jack alone. Anchored to the face on a ledge, barely the width of his shoulders. Remember the term belaying when one partner holds the safety rope in case you fall? There's none of that now. Instead, Charlie has to rappel down, alone, using his belay device to control his descent with barely any light. And the ice is still melting, meaning even more rocks are beginning to fall. I look up and there's a stone the size of a basketball. 
and it's looking straight at me and it's going, I got you. And right at my head. And I just slip it like a boxer, slip in a punch. It's like bullets. <laughs> and then when they have more weight, they go. As the rockfall intensifies, Charlie finds a novel way to keep his mind off the terror of it all. I'm a smartass, and I always make jokes to myself, even in the darkest moments. I develop a relationship with the two ropes. There's the blue one and the yellow one, and I like this one more than the other one. I talk to the ropes, and we have this journey down this, this mountain that's fallen apart. About six hours later, Charlie miraculously arrives at the bottom of the North Face, completely unscathed. I had this little ceremony where I pulled the robes and, you know, I had a conversation with them and I said, I'm sorry, but we're going to leave you here. And I buried one and I had no reason to take the other one, but I liked it. So I took it. Then I turned my attention to the next section of this descent, which was to cross through the ice fall and the crevasse field to where the skis were stashed. Crevasses, the vast cracks that form in ice sheets, can be as deep as 100 feet and sometimes over 50 feet wide. What makes them really dangerous is that they are often hidden by the snow. Flat light, such as the kind Charlie is now having a walk through, can also make it near impossible to spot them. Sometimes I would have to scamper, sometimes crawling, almost swimming, and... Finally, I knew there was this big, big hole coming up. And this was really a trippy because eventually I found this crevasse and it was gorgeous. So I just took this break where I took in this crevasse, this crescent-shaped feature that was indeterminate depth, but unbelievable beauty that I just burned into my brain. And then I got up, got the skis, and started to ski back to the camp. Just over eight hours after leaving Jack alone on the mountain, Charlie arrives back at base camp. He's been on the move for 30 hours solid. I remember I couldn't speak because I was so dehydrated and the stress of it. And there was some water in the tent and I drank this water. I can still feel how wonderful that was it was like the universe saying quietly, all right, he did good. When Charlie regains the use of his voice, he fires up the sat phone. If Jack is bleeding internally, as Charlie suspects, to have any chance of surviving, he needs to be airlifted off the mountain within the next 24 hours. Charlie knows only one person who can pull this off. I was at the ranger station. It was kind of like my second home in Talkeena. I spent a lot of time there. In 2002, Daryl Miller was the chief coordinator, rescue ranger for the Denali National Park in Alaska. Daryl is a good friend of Jack and Charlie's, who also helped coordinate a similar rescue three years earlier. 
It was late in the day, and Siri, Charlie's former wife, had just talked to Charlie from the glacier. And first thing she said, Jack's hurt bad. I just had that one phone call. And the next thing I was on the phone with RCC. That's the Alaskan Rescue Coordination Center, the central hub tasked with coordinating all U.S. military and civilian aviation search and rescue in the region. Airlifting someone off a mountain is something only the military can do. Charlie needs Daryl, not just for his experience, but because of his background serving in the military and the relationships he still maintains there. But there was one major problem that Charlie hadn't foreseen. Daryl works in America. Jack and Charlie were on the Canadian side of Mount Augusta. This was complicated because it was in Canada and it wasn't in the United States. When you call in and say, oh, we're going to go to Canada, that's what we need to do. We have two American climbers. Uh, let's go. That's not going to fly. Entering another country's airspace without permission is usually considered a violation of international law. And getting permission for it can take a few days. Daryl agrees to see what he could do. But in the meantime, it's left to the Canadian Park Services to try and rescue Jack. Back at base camp, an exhausted Charlie could only wait and hope for the best. When I made that call to Siri and when it was complete, I just broke down and cried. I was just, ugh, this all this emotion just flowed out of me. I started, you know, I'm not religious and I wasn't really praying, but I'm really hoping that they make it. And that Jack doesn't die. I stayed basically awake and aware, waiting for what would happen. It was late that night that I heard the helicopter. The helicopter is dispatched by the Canadian Park Services to first try and locate Jack before any plans could be made about how best to rescue him. It arrives on the scene around 8.30 p.m., just under 24 hours after Jack was struck by the rock. That made me so happy because I knew if he was alive, he would know that I was alive. And I'd made it. Sadly, the search was unsuccessful. Having got the wrong information from the bush pilot who originally flew Charlie and Jack to the mountain, the search team were looking for Jack in the wrong spot. After eventually running low on fuel, they were forced to return to their base empty-handed. With daylight fading, it will be hours before any other aircraft could try again. By then, Jack has not been seen or heard from since Charlie left him over 24 hours ago. He will now be spending a second night alone 2,000 feet up on the north face of Mount Augusta. If he's even still alive. And if he hasn't yet bled to death, huge chunks of rock are still falling from the mountain. 
the temperatures have plummeted back down to 15 degrees Fahrenheit. And that night, a snowstorm sweeps across the North Face that lasts for hours. But there's some hope on the way. After the initial failure to find Jack, Daryl Miller works his magic and manages to pull a few strings. Early that morning, he receives the news that the Alaska RCC has finally been given permission to join the search. Somebody from Canada called and said that they didn't need us. Then that changed real quick because of weather and whoever made that call. And the next thing I knew, the rescue was on again. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. As a rescue, you're, you're solving problems, right? Someone has this problem and you're there to solve it for them. If that's medically treating them, it's removing them from that environment. Dave Schumann is a pararescuer for the United States Air Force, or what's known in the trade as a PJ, short for para-jumper. He'll be flying out with the rescue helicopter as part of the team tasked with retrieving Jack from the mountain. My alert the next day comes on at 5 a.m., we come in and we get briefed on what the mission was. And it's not in great detail. It's kind of like a broad brush. And on the way, we started getting more information about what the rescue required and location. Throughout the night, Charlie is able to relay more precise information to locate Jack. Even still, by the time Dave and his team get airborne to look for him, it's been over 30 hours since Jack has last been seen. After a few hours of searching, they finally spot something. We were actually able to find that location flying over the glacier. We felt pretty confident where it was. I can just barely see the tent as we flew by. When Dave and his team move in closer, they see an arm sticking out of the tent, waving at them. It's Jack. It was on the phone that confirmed that they had Jack. He was alive. And I, then I drank a bottle of scotch. <laughs> and I drunk dialed everybody I knew. I was so happy. 
Despite Charlie's relief that Jack had been found alive, in truth, he is still a long way from safety. Once we got to the site with the helicopter, then it gets a little bit more technical. As Dave's pilot gets the chopper as close to Jack as possible, Dave readies himself to jump out. Probably a good hundred and something feet above him so we can try to keep rotor distance off the cliff face. I clip into the hoist cable and I'm getting lowered down the aircraft. I've ridden the hoist a lot in my career, but this is probably the one time I recall there was a bit of fear because just the exposure, you know, you're thousands of feet off the ground at this point. Just as Dave draws close to Jack, there is a problem. The helicopter's still heavy, so it's not able to hold a real steady hover, and all that just gets magnified to that cable. So I'm probably 100 feet below the helicopter, and the cable just starts swinging with me on it, osculating really close to the cliff, and it's just way off over the glacier and looking down a couple thousand feet. And I'm spinning and can't get control. Davis hauled back inside the aircraft, where the team run the numbers again. They have seven minutes of fuel left to complete the rescue. A refueling plane is en route to help, but with no way of knowing what Jack's condition was, failure now could be fatal. Davis sent down for one more go. This time, the cable remained steady as Davis slowly lowered onto the face. It couldn't really put me onto the tent. I ended up going past the tent, probably 40, 50 feet when my crampons actually touched down onto the ice. I had my ice tools and I start climbing up toward Jack. get to the tent and I use my ice tool to open up the side of the tent and there's Jack laying on his back and I clip in his harness and I yell to him we have to go Dave would like to have used a spine board but all that is out of the question there's no possibility of doing any form of treatment in that environment the number one problem to solve there was removing them from that environment so we could treat them. A lot of winds beat down on the tent. It's flapping all over the place. He slid into this sleeping bag and I grabbed him to slide him over toward me like between my legs. I'll never forget, I had a helmet on with a visor so he couldn't really see my face. But I could see his. And the look of pain in his face just stands out. With Jack secured to Dave and the winch, Dave signals to the aircraft to lift them up. The cables at an angle going to me and Jack. And as they tighten that, we have no choice but to swing like a, just like a regular swing off into the void. When you're swinging out on that cable off that cliff, you're just looking down thousands of feet it's probably 2,500 feet from when it swung out into space to where the ground was at that point. Then swinging back in, incredibly close to the cliff face, 
we swing way out off this cliff, way out into space in the helicopter. At this point, I notice how fast we're flying as we're both hanging below the aircraft because of the fuel situation. As Dave and Jack swing under the helicopter, it connects to the refueling plane. As it refuels, Jack is hauled on board. Though he's severely beaten up, Jack does not have any internal bleeding. The rock that struck him was found to have broken his back and neck in three places and caused severe bruising on his spinal cord. He lost three teeth and tore muscles and cartilage in his chest and arms. After six days in the hospital, he returned home. My name is Jack Tackle. Um, I'm 69 years old, and I originally am based in Bozeman, Montana. I never saw the rock. Never heard it. Never saw it. All of a sudden, I'm upside down, been knocked off, and... I had no idea what really happened. Having done the same for his climbing partner, Ken Kearns, on Mount Denali, Jack knew almost immediately that Charlie would have to leave him if he had any chance of surviving. I just told him to tell Pat that I loved her and to tell my mom. It wasn't clear if I'd ever see Charlie again. All in all, Jack spent 40 hours alone on the mountain as he battled further rock falls and the elements. Rocks were going through the tent, and I'm just a sitting duck, right? There was one rock that was probably the size of a softball that went through the front of the tent. Conversely, the sort of positive side of this hole in the tent was now I could actually see more about what was going on in the outside world. I want to add here that Jack, with all his experience and knowledge, was truly surviving in every sense of the word. He's not only battling the elements, the rocks, the snow, but he's doing it while being immobile. Can't really do anything except stay in place, hydrate, and consume food. So his battle becomes very quickly a mental one as well as a physical one. In those circumstances, just as Jack did, the best thing to do is to try and focus on whatever physical things you can do. Even if it's as simple as boiling water and making sure the water doesn't spill, all of those things keep his mind focused. You'd have to be completely delusional to not have some doubt that things might not work out. But I think I've always had an ability, whether it's a defense mechanism or I'm just stubborn or, you know, not very smart, I don't know, but I was pretty sure I was gonna make it. Once I got into the back of the helicopter, I remember just looking at the middle great floor and thinking, well, you know, I'm good. It was another few days before a flight could be sent out to pick up Charlie off the mountain. The first familiar face he saw when he got back was Jack's. 
we were really happy to see each other. I don't remember what we said, but we were back from being smart asses, you know. You're, you're fucking slow. Yeah, you get hit. We're, you know, back teasing each other like 12-year-olds that happened to be 44. This event didn't really change our relationship other than it deepened it and affirmed. I think that it affirmed what we saw in each other and what we felt about ourselves. It cemented our friendship, I can tell you that. I think I can say that safely for both of us. I know I can for myself. I'll be forever grateful to him because first and foremost, I owe my survival to Charlie and the PJs and Schumann and Daryl and the other 35 people involved in the rescue. So, you know. <clears throat> Since Charlie and Jack never actually completed the climb they set out to do, for a while they toyed with the idea of giving it another go. In the end, they decided against it. I couldn't imagine how climbing to the summit of Augusta could eclipse the experience that I had with Jack on that mountain. Because, you know, we were at our very, very best in a very bad situation. And it was, in some respects, a highlight of a career. Couldn't imagine that actually climbing the damn thing would, would eclipse that experience. I had no interest in going back. Didn't want to get hit by a rock either. Isn't that funny? <laughs> Drunk dialing people on a sat phone. <laughs> oh, he's a good human. Yeah. I can only imagine what was going on in his world, right? Like, you know, I speak about the intensity for my, my few moments there, right? How intense that was. But Charlie's intensity lasted a lot longer and even more risky. It reminds me of a, a saying that a friend once told me, that you choose your climbing partners wisely. And what that means is that when things go sideways, you need a partner that has the skills and the fortitude to deal, to get you and him down. That partner expects the same from you. As a, a climber and alpinist, when I think about this story, it perfectly lays out that that contract, this unwritten, unspoken contract between two alpinists, right? Charlie fulfilled his portion of that contract. You've been listening to Rescue with Donnie Dust. Rescue is a Sony Music Entertainment production. Thanks to all the contributors for sharing their story with us. Rescue is produced by Richard McLean Smith. The executive producer is Louisa Field. The junior producer is Martha Miller. Scoring and sound design by Gulliver Tickle. Music composed by Eleni Hassabas. The production coordinator is Lily Hambly. The production manager is Kat Moran. Thanks to Ellie Lazaridis for additional production support. Thanks to Jez Nelson, Chris Skinner, and Julia Stevenson. If you like this podcast, 
then do check out other Sony podcasts.